I actually started to think as I was reading what other people were doing, that it was time to think differently about developing and releasing software. Yeah. And it taught me a lot about how to do that, that I still use today. And I believe it's a better way to build and ship reliable software that's customer centric. This episode is sponsored by Florio, founded by ex-Amazonian Vijay Ravindran. Florio is the leading research-backed system using virtual reality to deliver immersive, fun, and affordable lessons for children and adults with autism spectrum disorder. Special discounts are available for current Amazon.com employees. Learn more at floriotech.com. That's F-L-O-R-E-O-T-E-C-H.com. Hi, folks. I'm Dave Chappelle, and I'd like to welcome you to the Invent Like an Owner podcast, where I talk with the Amazonians who help build Amazon.com into one of the world's most valuable companies. This weekly podcast is for entrepreneurs and business leaders. The goal of the podcast is to capture the Amazon creation stories and create, create a historical archive. On that note, my guests are recalling history as best they can. It's possible some of the details are fuzzy or just plain wrong. And by the way, Neil's going to correct something from our prior podcast with Miriam. So that'll be our first correction in, in real time. Uh, so if that happens, it isn't intentional. I invite you or future guests to help us get the facts as straight as they can be. Now on with the show. Today, I'm thrilled to be talking with Neil Roseman, who is a VP of Software Engineering from 1998 to 2007, and Jorit Vandermeulen, who's a Director of Product from 99 to 05. And then he loved it so much, he returned in 2008 and he's uh, now the VP for uh, managing European retail. They both helped launch many products and services over the years. So I was a little surprised when Neil told me he wanted to talk about a few projects that came closer to the end of his career in 2004, 2005 timeframe. Specifically, I want to talk about the DVD rental business. Yes, Amazon sent DVDs via post um, and some related services that were created in anticipation of that launch. Today, you'll learn how a subscription service launched to support what turned out to be some smaller businesses was later used to power some of Amazon's most successful subscription products, products of all time, including Amazon Prime and digital music and more. So long intro, but welcome, Neil and Yorit. Thanks, Thanks Dave. for having us, Dave. And Neil, great to be with you again. You know, uh, this is uh, the, definitely the highlight of my week, maybe the highlight of my pandemic. Getting to actually see you at face to face because we keep missing each other when we are located on the same continent. You try. Um, yeah, so Jorit's based in Luxembourg. Uh, and I, I joked to him earlier, it's like uh, this podcast is like one of the top 20 podcasts for entrepreneurs in Luxembourg. And the joke there is that that's because Amazon employees make up such a hard, uh, a big part of the Luxembourg population. So uh, good job on hiring. Um, so, so we're going to talk uh, today quite a bit about the subscription service, I think. Um, but to set the table for that, many people who don't live in the UK or Germany probably aren't aware that Amazon ever had a DVD rental business uh, via mail. So can one of you tell me like, sort of how and when, by whom that decision was made? Yeah, I will uh, start. In I think it probably was early 2004 because... Uh, DVD rental launched in the UK in 2004, and I think it probably either was the OP1 of the previous year at the end of 2003 or sometime early in 2004. Yorit may actually still have the documents to uh, 
you know, remind us of that. You know, look, we had been looking to expand video and enter into more businesses. And obviously the question of would Amazon do a DVD rental business like Netflix had been asked for a long time. And we finally decided we had enough pieces and it was the right time to do it. And through a process mostly driven by Yorit and his great finance director, who wound up kind of being the product owner for it, Bertrand Bodson, we decided rather than trying to launch first in the US, we would launch in other geographies where Netflix wasn't quite as established and we could build it at a scale that would make sense for us. You know, it's a lot like the way everyone launches a mobile app today. Most people launch in a region that's not the US. You launch in Australia or right. Canada because you can geofence it and figure it out. We kind of did that. We went to a market where there wasn't, we thought, as big of a competitor and what we did could be seen on its in its own light rather than being compared constantly. And we could do it at a scale that made sense. So after a, a lengthy uh, decision process, we decided to launch first in Europe and we launched ultimately in the UK, Germany, and France. And was that the and first time Amazon ever did that sort of outside the US first launch, as far as you know? Well, you know, we did things in Japan that we didn't do elsewhere that I, you know, I can't think of anything other than like payment methods that were country specific before that. But yeah. uh, there had been some mobile initiatives that one of my teams had worked on a couple of years before that were specific to Japan, uh, particularly they had a different mobile interface and mobile commerce was actually a thing in Japan long before it was anywhere. So we had done some things that I think were location specific. And I'm sure operationally, there was a lot more that was done yeah. that I don't even know about or remember. But uh, I think this is the first business that was launched exclusively in a geography that was not the US. Right. And that, that was my that was my yeah. recollection, too. And it, the other thing that was it was designed to launch initially in Europe with fast follows into other geographies right. where there might have been things that had been launched prior that were for that geography specifically, right. um, you know, versus uh, uh, something that had a global, global eye. And so was this, was this Amazon's first sort of consumer subscription business? Like what other, I'm trying to think about the things that are sort of unique about it. Like I think about that, I think about it was a service business sort of versus physical product. Uh, I mean, there were physical products arriving, but it was more about the, the service that you were subscribing to. Definitely the first subscription billing business because Amazon couldn't do subscription billing. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, we had subscription emails. Right. Back in when you talk to some of the other early Amazonians and you could talk about that you know there was a very robust email program you used to be able to sign up for in a whole bunch of categories, um, you know. And but that was the closest we did to anything that was subscription was right. you could subscribe to like an email about science fiction books. Right, and that used to be called Eyes at first, I think, and then it was Delivers. Oh, I think it was I. Yeah, it might have been in that order. Something yeah, like Amazon that. Eyes and then Amazon Delivers. Yeah, right. And so did did uh, this launch. You said Netflix wasn't there, or maybe they were small. Did this delay Netflix's launch? Do you do you know if it impacted it at all, or did they just skip physical DVDs in in Europe? Netflix was not in those countries, right? And 
I will let you answer the other part of that question. I mean, it was, um, I mean, it was quite fascinating because you got to go, if you go back in time, like um, they had a Q3 earnings announcement that was a, um, the, the, the subject of the DVD rental, uh, the Amazon's entry in DVD rental was, was the primary topic of that uh, earnings announcement. Uh, and they made a bunch of strategic changes uh, as a result, which, you know, hats off to Reed and his team. Like, you know, they did a, they did a great job. They kind of refocused on the U.S. Um, we went to, to Europe um, and uh, it was uh, they, it was yeah, there was just there was a huge right. impact. <laughs> and was it so we launched in 2004 in the U.K. and then I looked I saw Germany was 2005. Was it a success? Was it a mild success? Like how did, what happened to the business after launch? And again, we're going to get to the underlying subscription service and some other things. It's just, I don't really know if a lot of people know, like this never got, I don't think it ever got to the U.S. Is that correct? That is correct. It did not. It did not. Yeah. So I, I'll, I'll touch on yeah. that a little bit, Neil. Yeah. You jump in. I mean, um, you know, the overall business was, I would say, you know, relatively successful um it was it was as you know certainly like when when you look at kind of the plans right. that we built and what we thought it would do uh it did well against those plans um and um you know i think that the ultimate benefit as you kind of touched on earlier to amazon was was you know very right. multifaceted you know in not only in terms of you know technology that we built that enabled you know significantly larger businesses later, um, but kind of the way that this ultimately played out too uh, led to um, you know an acquisition of the business by by Love Film, which you know was kind of a a, a conscious choice of us to to divest of the business it, uh, to Love Film and to kind of do a partnership with Love Film, um, and that ultimately came full circle where we ended up. Purchasing Love Film, uh, which was kind of the genesis of, uh, or at least our first step into, um, you know, streaming video in a big way, and Amazon would later yeah. become Amazon Video. So, you know, I would say that the DVD rental business on its own, per se, was was interesting. Um, you know, what it spawned was um, was was a, even you know a it lot does more interesting. feel to me like there's a lot of these sort of stories where if you take a really long-term perspective, that in hindsight, it all looks very clear. We did this, we got these services that powered these subscription businesses, and then we knew streaming was coming. So, and and I'm, I'm sure it wasn't as clean as that, you know, but it, it looks it looks nice and tidy. Um, but, you know, yeah. did we think physical DVDs were going to be around as long as they were? I mean, that because in 2004, 2005, that was already... Neil might know, like six years after we launched the DVD business, and I don't know when streaming sort of hit its stride, but it feels like it would have been around that time frame. Well, streaming had not hit its stride yet, and it would be a couple of more years before that happened. Although once that happened, it happened very rapidly. Right. You know, but the old saying, like the, you know, throughput of a truck full of DVDs was hard to beat for a long time. Right. So even though streaming was possible, the latency, the buffering really limited high quality, you know, movie length streaming for a while, but then it happened all at once. You know, we probably entered too late. I think the product was successful. It, as you already point out, it actually met, you know, most of its financial goals. It didn't become the number one in every country 
uh, immediately like we might have been used to. Like when I launched the video store in seven weeks in 1998, we, we were the number one DVD retailer in the world very quickly. So that was a little disappointing when we couldn't right. get to the top in every area, but it created a lot of novel warehouse processes. We never had had to both ship and return things. We had to invent a new kind of mailer right. because in this space, the mailers were very proprietary. And so we had to spend a long time figuring out how we were going to physically ship DVDs and then take them back and put them back into rotation. People so have... operationally, we learned a lot as well. And the product was really good. Uh, so I am very happy with the team that we built. That right. team went on to do a lot of other things, uh, many of whom are still there yeah. at Amazon. Two two things that I sort of learned, maybe I should have known this, but learned about in thinking about DVD. So part of the problem with it is just the cost of the product, right? Because the the studios charge you a lot of money for every for every rentable dvd so then you have a two-pronged problem at the the most popular ones you gotta buy a ton of these most popular dvds in order to have selection and availability but then at the long end the long tail you got to also pay for those expensive dvds that may not rent very often and so did we know about that part of the business going in and we said let's figure it out we'll learn about it and try to figure it out or was was any of that a little bit of a rude awakening. It was super well known. It was, it was, I mean, you're hitting on the hardest thing about the whole entire business model. And, you know, just to, to take a step back, like you need that top right. release DVD for about a month. You, you know, the window of like, you know, when people really, really, really want to watch it right. is super short. And so you're kind of always, managing you know if you you got to go way back in your thought process think back on you remember netflix had the queue and they kind of they were expert at moving you to the back catalog um so that they didn't have to buy that much front catalog because that just totally upside down you turned your whole pnl upside down um and if you think about the way that the amazon website works it's all about front list you know, the, like the, the traffic to the detail pages of the latest and greatest is significantly higher than the tail. So like at Amazon, the tail doesn't scare us. It's yeah. actually part of our strategy. Um, but it's like, how do you manage that front list? Um, and then in, 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 in reality, it's like, how do you manage um, customer joy or disappointment um, and kind of yeah. operate a P&L, um, you know, with the amount of traffic and the type of traffic you get from the Amazon system. So like yeah. we spent a lot of time on that. That was like, that was kind of the majority of our conversation. And we were trying to figure out like the algorithms by which you would kind of allocate this top product to customers and manage customer disappointment. Uh, and ultimately it led to kind of like how we thought about wh- how we wanted to price the service um, I mean, it, and market it, the service. It makes you understand um, really clearly why Netflix ran to the subscription streaming model, you know, like because they were wrestling with it too. Maybe they had bigger scale, but like you said, they had set up their site differently with their queues as well because we would all put 75 movies in our queue and we weren't that upset if we couldn't get the first seven right away, you know, and so it was, but... Right, and yeah. subscriber growth helps with that. So if you don't get high levels of subscriber growth, it gets, you know, more and more difficult to manage that inventory. Yeah. And right, it's it's like a, you know, uh, social game where 
early in its life cycle, you have to drive usage very high, right? And similarly, new releases, right? That you have to buy so much of that inventory to service a very small yeah. time. Right? Well, one, and then one, you, you actually have a lot of inventory. One other thing somebody told me about this, which I thought people would find interesting, was that, especially because Amazon's sort of well-known as you know, the fulfillment center and logistics experts. But the, in the, for DVD rentals in the U.S., Netflix actually took a different approach where they were optimized for the U.S. Postal Service, you know, and, and I guess local. I don't know how you would describe this, but DVD rentals didn't actually, at the time, where Amazon's fulfillment centers were in these bigger, maybe more remote locations, it wasn't actually the optimal way to fulfill DVDs. Correct. Is that something like that? Yeah, we well, we you know, Amazon fulfillment centers at the time were near big injection points. Right. Whereas I think at the time Netflix had about thirty smaller centers closer to you know USPS injection centers to cover their market. Right. Which was one reason that trying to service the U.S. market out of the gate without learning how the business worked yeah. would have been a real challenge. So you know, we did it. I think in true Amazon style. Less, you know, worrying about competition and more about sure. we need to learn about this business and do it in a way that makes sense and start small and right. grow. Like last week, you heard about music mini launch or how quickly we launched DVD sales at Amazon with reduced functionality. Yeah, I don't think we reduced the functionality here. In this case, we reduced the complexity by picking a market that was more solvable. Yeah. That Royal remind, Mail. Reminds me real quick, you mentioned it. you wanted to correct something in last yeah. week's episode. What was that real quick? Well, you know, I'll briefly cover how I got to Amazon in 1995 through 1997. I was at a very early internet startup in New York that uh, we had the first streaming audio on the web. And at the end of 97, you, I actually you, said- You also had the ugliest website ever created on the internet. Uh, oh, but that's just on. my opinion. Uh, hey, that was um, N2K Music Boulevard. It was well, very, Music it was Boulevard very... and N2K. I, I don't agree, but that's okay. Uh, at <laughs> the end of 1997, I actually sent an email to Amazon trying to get a job, but no one responded. And uh, at the end of 1996, excuse me. And at the end of 1997, a recruiter in New York was talking to me about a, an employee of mine who was looking to get a job somewhere else. And she said to me, hey, what are you thinking of doing? Because I was leaving the company I was at. And I said, you know, I think I'm just going to hang out in New York for a while. I have a couple of things to do. She said, anyone you are you interested in? She, I said, well, yeah, Amazon. I said, that's one company I would talk to. I tried to, you know, interest right. them last year. No one ever wrote back to me. She said, oh, well, they're doing a search for someone to, you know, launch a new product. So I said, great. I'd love to talk to them. And it turned out to be music. So Miriam was one of Mariam Mohit was on my interview loop, as was Kim Rackmeller. And I joined Amazon in order to launch the music store. So last week, Mariam said that Kim was the TPM or technical program manager on music, but it's actually why I joined the company. There were only a small number of TPMs at that time, and all of the others got pulled to work on the EU launches of the UK and Germany. Right. Sean Welch, who was a TPM at the time, had started working on music, but uh, needed to switch to Europe. So 
we were hiring someone else. So I came in, I did the music mini launch and then classical launch. Then later that year, we launched video and then toys. Right. And uh, electronics in Q4. That's awesome. It was a good year. Actually, right now, would probably be, before we get into subscriptions, York, can you just talk about how you came to Amazon originally and just the quick version of, and came back and obviously been there a really long time now? Sure. Um, well, I, I was introduced to Amazon um, coming out of you know business school, doing the interview loops in 98. Um, uh, had an offer. Uh, it, was, uh, it wasn't that competitive versus other offers. And I thought that I wasn't sure it was a great idea. Um, and I still remember my wife looking at me going, you know, I don't know, selling books right. on the Internet seems like a pretty darn good idea to me. Um, but what did she know? I'd, I'd gone to business school. She hadn't. Um, it turned out to be pretty darn smart. Um, so I, I, in 1999, after going to a startup called Trilogy Software in Austin, you know, Texas, he was a, which he was, was a killer a recruiter disaster. on college campuses at, at, at MBA. Yeah, they, they came to Wharton as well. It was oh a, it my was a, God. quite a show. He, he got, he, yeah, they did. They did okay. They got me. Um, I came back to Amazon in uh, in '99, um, and I came there to launch the the sporting goods store, um, uh, which is kind of a funny thing because, you know, we didn't do dropship, which is like 25% of sporting goods. We didn't do apparel, yeah. which is like 50% of sporting goods. So, you know, in my first couple months there, I wrote the business plan <laughs> for sporting goods. It was right. like, okay, we can do ping pong paddles, but not much more. Um, doesn't seem like a good idea. Um, and, uh, and they agreed with me. So like, uh, you know, in the first two months I had to find another job. And at that point I went to work for, um, a guy who Neil, you, we all know very well named Harrison Miller, who was, um, launching the, the toys tab, the, uh, toy store that, that Neil just talked about. And so, uh, I joined on with Harrison and launched toys. Awesome. And well, thanks. Kind so of did a bunch of things from back there. To, so, so as part of, or not actually tied directly to the launch of DVD rentals, but, Neil, I think you had other people on your team that were investigating uh, APIs. Can you describe this sort of service, uh, a, a, the different approach to things with a service or an API as compared to a product launch like in, the, in the way we've been talking about them with Amazon? Yeah, so I will have to cover a teeny bit of Amazon history and then ask Yura to correct me, especially on the timeline, because I realize I'm old and I don't remember the exact order everything happened, because as you know, at that period of time, and probably still today at Amazon, a, a lot of things happen at the same time. And now with the size of the company, I think many, you know, infinitely more things happen at the same time. That's one thing Amazon's actually been really good at is doing many things at once and not having them need to be tightly coupled. Yeah. And one place that started was I had to back up a teeny bit uh, and talk about Amazon's move to a services oriented architecture. So when I joined Amazon and with many of the people you're talking about, the Amazon application that ran the website was a single monolithic application. And eventually we couldn't build or deploy that software any longer. And so we decided to embark on a major project to break apart Amazon's monolith into services. And right. that project was called Garupa, the previous application had been called Obidos. And Garupa became a launch requirement for Target.com. So we built a services-based offering for that. And that was a key input to what happened later with notions of 
the PR and fact methodology. So that had also just recently started working backwards, right. you know, formalizing an API documentation for your service, a press release, and an FAQ. And the third stream I would add into that is agile development. So around this time, in I think 2001 or so, the Gang of Four released the Agile Manifesto. So a famous document that pretty much laid out what became Agile development. Yeah. And I was a big fan of that. I started to institute that in the teams that I ran. So I ran a bunch of teams. So all of that came together when we were building this. So when we needed a subscription billing service or when we needed to do subscription billing, rather than try and just add it to existing payment or ordering systems using this new model, we decided to build it as a service. Right. And this would have been in 2004 leading up to the launch of DVD rental. And I had a team that worked on this. Brian Saltzman was a technical program manager that worked for me. There was a team of both young and older developers, including Pierre Galen and VJ Chembrakar. And because of Amazon's willingness to have, you know, like product teams were technical and non-technical folks together, Yorit actually wound up working for me, a technical guy who has trouble reading a business plan. And Yorit, a business guy who would have trouble reading back then, I think, a technical requirements document. And at least in my mind, one of my first meetings with Yorit around launching subscriptions in particular, and one reason I wanted to talk about this is talking to him about agile development. Because the biggest difference, one of the big differences, is you go away from date-driven development. Yeah. And what Amazon was very focused on for a long time, as were most companies, is we're going to pick a date sometime in the future. And we're going to line up everyone to launch on that date. We had war teams. This was mentioned last week. We marched to the same beat. It was very concrete, Gantt chart-based, you know, dependency-based planning, right. very waterfall-like. And I wanted us to move to agile development, actually using Scrum. Brian learned about being a Scrum master. And at least in my mind, I remember talking to Yorit about, don't worry, there's no date. You're not going to have any dates, but we're going to ship stuff every two weeks. So on average, you only have to wait seven days to see something. Right. And I tell this story over and over because I work with lots of great growth companies today. So I use it's one reason I wanted to discuss it here is that I said, you know, one of the geniuses is when you have people who realize that and say, okay, I get it and I'm going to make it work. And in my recollection, you're initially freaked out a little bit, but disagreed and committed. And we actually built a very good service in a very short amount of time. But so that's my recollection is that uh, I pushed agile development on because Europe was managing the development team, not me directly. Yep. Uh, and so but I sort of imposed this process. And he was able to actually understand it and make it work. So that's the story I tell. So you are, we can hear the, which parts the of that truth. is true. Cause I have my own comments on scrum, but yeah, let's hear it. I think that's generally correct. And as Neil, uh, often does, and I appreciate it in this case, uh, he, he's probably giving me a lot more credit than I deserve in this one. Um, but we did run, um, this, this program exactly the way that Neil described it. And, um, and as he said, initially I was kind of like, okay, this, this doesn't work because I, you know, I need a date so that I can back up all the kind of other business, right. you know, the, you know, the, the important things, um, you know, which, which ultimately ended up just 
not being that important. And it all kind of gave us time to kind of work things out. Um, and it allowed us to kind of adaptively move through the process. And so like, you know, as you're inventing and building, like you're learning so much as it goes through, you know, not having kind of a rigid timeline and a rigid structure allows you to be way yeah. more adaptive. And I found us doing that quite a bit. So how we set up the database, what the calls were like, uh, you know, I still remember some really funny conversations about the get commands in our database, which, you know, yeah. at first I was like, okay, what the hell is a get command? Um, it's pretty intuitive after you kind of get it for a second, but like the fact that we were going to talk about the business model and for 45 minutes with Jeff, we talked about what our get commands were and what our database tables looked like. Um, you know, it was all testament to the kind of the process that we had where we just had, you know, business and tech and everybody uh, working yeah, I together. Ask this about, is one of my, uh, figuring out well, as we Dave, went. I just want to, cause I want to hear your recollection of this. So we have not talked about this since then. And I tell a story about this. So I've actually been curious, like, Hey, what does your remember about this? One of my favorite parts of this process, this was early in the PR FAC API documentation presentation. So when we were building the subscription service, I'm pretty sure it was subscription and not the DVD rental queue. At least in my head, it was building subscriptions. The tech lead, we wrote an API documentation and a fact, and we reviewed that with Jeff. And I have a memory of we had this meeting and either Yorit or I said, we should invite the rest of the team that works on one. Jeff always liked the person who was there and doing the stuff to be in the room anyway. So we invited several folks, including Brian Saltzman, the TPM, Rob Owen, who was one of the engineers on the team. VJ Chembrakar might have been in there probably, and Pierre Galen, also other engineers on the team. And it was not a very good document, which is my fault, not yours, I would say, as the CTO of our little company, but that's really how we got to run it. And let's just say Jeff was not pleased. I'm, that's probably the first time that you had heard the, you know, actually critique of the API. This was just reviewing developers' documentation and an API manual, and it was horrific. And the developers were freaked out because most of them had never been in a meeting with Jeff before. It was like, oh, I don't ever want to do that again. However, we chatted with Jeff because, you know, it was we were used to that and I was happy to get the feedback. And he realized that, you know, this was a first version and we had another meeting with it when we made the document better with the team. And he was incredible, as he always was in those kind of meetings when he knew and had been oriented correctly. But, you know, uh, it was the first time that I, after the Garupa launch, that we presented an API to Jeff. But that's a meeting that I vividly remember <laughs> and I often retell the story about. So I don't know what you remember about that, Yored, but. Well, it's it's funny because I remember exactly what room we were in <laughs> and where everybody was yeah. sitting in that meeting. That's the kind of impression it made upon me. Um, and there were, there were two things. Um, one is, uh, you know, I thought we were building a DVD rental business, um, but it became really clear that what we were building was a subscription billing platform. Um, you know, maybe not first and foremost, but like in Jeff's mind, kind of first and foremost. And I was initially super confused by the detailed questions he was asking about, the, like I said, the database structure the tables in the database, the get commands, the APIs. And it was only like after much reflection later that I realized that 
his vision for what this subscription billing system was actually going to power in the future was far, far, far more substantial than right. a DVD rental business. So, um, you know, that's kind of what I took out of that. But like that meeting was super eye opening to me kind of for those for those same reasons about like what's important to who um, and knowing what was really important to Jeff was obviously a, a good as we say, yeah, teaching or learning a, a moment. Teaching moment. Yeah. <laughs> Having gotten, you know direct feedback prior to this i was fine with it and and we and actually it made it a much better product but i think this is a very early example yeah. of both amazon building a truly decoupled working backwards services model and that's one reason i think it's really uh, you know a valuable lesson cuz this was very early in that journey there were i don't know what if any other services were available that had not been immediately descended from the original website. This is definitely one of, if not the earliest yeah, such re- example and built using modern agile development. Yeah. I just, I remember that that same time, but in a different orbit of Amazon, cause I was working with Andy on the, uh, the first Amazon web services. And I remember those meetings with Jeff where we're talking through S3 or EC2 or payments and some of those didn't go well, <laughs> you know, or Al Vermeulen, who was a Amazon CTO, I think was his title. Like they'd have to go rewrite S3 because, it, you know, Jeff would get into such level of detail because he was thinking 10, 15 years out, I think, you know, the, the way like or how redundant it had to be was beyond what an engineer might think is reasonable for a V1. Anyway, it's it, just good at finding your mistakes. Yeah. As well, good leaders are, then that's yeah. what you want. So right? that's that's. You want so, someone who can dig deep. So before I, I wanted to ask some more about subscription, but just for listeners who might not know what we're talking about, what are some of the key features? Like it's just like monthly billing, you know, like things that make get complicated really quickly um, that you that most people don't think about, like refunds, promotions. Like is that the type of stuff that was in V one? If you think about, I understand there were a lot of Scrum or a lot of agile launches, but when you thought about the the product that needed to be ready for magazines and DVD rentals, what were some of the key features that needed to be in there? I'll, I'll start with a couple. I mean, mon- monthly billing was a, was a big one, which seems so basic right now, but like back in the day, like we stored credit cards, but we you know did it for transactional purposes, not on a regular basis. That was a really big one. Um, just building a queue, that kind of had to be managed and, and operated, building the, um, the all of the algorithms around how you allocate your precious supply was, was an important one. Um, and then there were a ton, and Neil touched on them earlier, on the operations side, you know, where Amazon was, you know, world-class at shipping stuff to customers and far less than world class or, you know, far less energy on receiving stuff back from customers. Yeah. But we had a continual revolving door through the, the fulfillment centers in the UK. And so how you set that up, how you manage that and how you operationalize that. Like those are some of the things that we were, you know, were completely new right. to us and that we um, that we had to kind of invent our way around. Yeah. And simply building reliable recurring billing at scale and avoiding fraud in that scenario is challenging, right? We were, even though we were launching in a smaller geography than the US, yeah, it's a pretty big geography and we were pretty well established by that point yeah. in the UK. We expected it and it was a pretty good sized business. Right. So, and we didn't have any systems that did that. Let's, you know, let's not forget. And if we talk, if you ever talk about digital purchasing, this will come up again. 
and the creation of another foundational service that still runs at Amazon today uh, called the Digital Order and Charge Service. We had to have a physical shipping address. But when you're doing the subscription billing, you're not billing against the shipping address because that's separate from the fulfillment, right? right. You're billing is for a service, not for that uh, fulfillment. And so we had to build completely different processes than had been used. And then because we were fulfilling a physical good out of our warehouses, those warehouses had to have methods that they could call right. that would let them know that this was a subscriber in good standing. And yes, I can send them this DVD. Right. And we were building this as a service and it wasn't the service that was already in use. Right. So we did have to work in a loosely coupled fashion with other teams that we did not control and still get it delivered on time. So just building an actual user-facing, restful set of web services to support subscription billing at scale, non-trivial at the time. Yep. And obviously, in the intervening years, there have been quite a few businesses that have grown quite successful and are very large companies now that just have done that. Yeah. And so you launched, you launched DVD rentals and the service yep. was launched. When did you find out of SMS yeah, when, is running? When yep. did you find out about Prime and tell that story? Because I'm a little bit confused about I we have some notes there that says subscription service was genericized a little later. And so I, I'm I'm assuming it wasn't totally standalone, or maybe it just needed a different functionality for Prime. Uh, I don't think it needed anything different. There was some work we did. Uh, I'd have to look back at the project documents. So here's my recollection of the timeline, and Yorit hopefully will have others sometime around holiday 2004, early 2005, somewhere in that end of the 2004 year. I feel like there had been an idea in the idea tool. So Amazon had super saver shipping where you could right. wait till you had an economic shipping quantity and then we deliver. And somebody put in the idea tool, maybe Charlie Ward if I remember, but somebody right. put in the idea tool, why don't we have a club for shipping? Which would, because we knew customers don't like pay. I mean, none of us, we like, we don't like to pay shipping. So that was, that was, I think how the idea for prime came up, but there was an idea for prime. And at some meeting, you know, people were saying, yeah. And by the way, in order to do prime. So the hard parts of prime are, all of the fulfillment and promises and all of that, right? Yeah. Figuring out what products are primable. That's the hard stuff. Yeah. The easy stuff would be, would have been, we're also going to charge people an annual fee for this and it's going to be 79 bucks. Can we do that? Well, you can't do that through the order pipeline because it's not that kind of purchase. Yeah. So there was some meeting where they were talking about, well, we need recurring billing and we could put our hand up and say, hey, we, we have recurring billing over here. And so we used the, the subscription management service. I'm sure Yorit's team did some modifications. There were probably some requirements, although for a single annual billing of 79 bucks, you know, we probably had to add another program, but that concept was already in the subscription management service from the get-go. Right. Because it was it was not built for DVD rental. It was a separate initiative anyway. Uh, so my recollection is one of the, Small, I will admit, one of the small reasons, though, that moved an obstacle out of the way to launching Prime on the aggressive timeline that we wanted was that we actually had a working, loosely coupled, API-driven 
recurring billing service that was already running and handling millions of transactions a day. Basically, Prime launched out of the gate with $79. And it doesn't matter that we don't have the extra, like what new got added to it. But basically, it was pretty well equipped to, you know, because you had built it the right way uh, to handle Prime and later was used for other things, right? Like digital music and uh, or digital music subscriptions and, and things like that. My suspicion is it's used for all other subscriptions. I wouldn't be surprised if some version of it is running today. Yeah. But- I don't know for sure, obviously. Yeah, that's all. And that was, you know, that was a, a lot of the conversations that, you know, certainly I had with Jeff on the business side as we were building it was, you know, the ideas of all the other services that you and businesses that you just talked about, Dave, uh, running on this subscription billing platform, magazines, uh, right? You know, what have you. So we we definitely built it with the ability to service many different products and many different timelines and many different configurations um, in the structure that we're awesome. talking about. So we have about 10 minutes. I want to, uh, at the end, I want to actually get a quick update on what you're both doing because it's sort of, it's very tied to Amazon in, in your case, but uh, Neil's been working with Summit for a while. I want to hear, and I think people would like to hear that. So what I what I ask at the end of every episode is, is just like two, two-parter, like, and mainly here for DVD rentals and and then the subscription service, subscription management service, like A, what would you have done differently, if anything? Um, and then B, what do you think the sort of walk away lessons are for entrepreneurs or people, you know, innovators working inside big companies um, from these businesses or these services? Well, Neil, I'll jump in really quick and I'll start because I, I still have yeah. one that keeps me up at night. Um, um, and that is, I, I probably would have done a different pricing program. We wrestled with the pricing program um, ad nauseum and kind of the the PL and and Netflix had a beautiful um, pricing program because they called it unlimited, you know, and mm-hmm. and it, it was unlimited to a certain degree, but there were some physical constraints of just like the amount of time it takes to shift things back and forth that it wasn't really unlimited, but it's such a great word right. to use. Um and the problem was, you know, the more you use Netflix, the more you kind of got degraded in terms of getting the stuff you really wanted. And, and the more you used it, the, the kind of the less they liked you because um, you became a yeah. less and less profitable customer. And I just I really struggled with that concept being a kind of customer first company when, in fact, most people wouldn't ever use more than four. And so we came up with a pricing right. plan that was kind of tailored to like what we thought people would actually use. And, um, and, uh, the trade-off was that you couldn't use the word unlimited. And, um, and I think that if I were to do it again, I, I, I would probably, I was very committed to this. We had long debates, but I, I'd probably do that differently. Um, and then to the second point, um, you know, and I kind of make this comment all the time as I talk within Amazon, like, the DVD rental program just proves that you can start a business inside Amazon. Like it's, it's kind of the world's biggest startup incubator, really. I mean, the thing that we didn't have to do was go out and raise money because we, you know, right. we just had to convince Jeff and the S team that it was a good business to do. Um, and, you know, I blame it for, you know, me leaving Amazon and going to an actual startup because I was like, you know, that was so much damn fun. Um, I got I have to go do it without kind of the training wheels. But, you know, even as I'm at Amazon today back again, 
there's a ton of businesses that we're still starting with very entrepreneurial feeling people. And, um, and so like you can do it, um, within a big company. That's definitely, well, you can do it within, you can do it within a few big companies. Like, you know, I describe, I, I describe Amazon to a lot of people as, as the world's biggest venture capital firm or incubator, whatever you, you know, but that's because Jeff, maybe from the DE Shaw approach to, to identifying businesses and investing them and launching them. Like it just, it, it's, I think it needs the right CEO or it yeah. obviously needs the right CEO and board and investor uh, commitment to do it. But yeah, it, it's a pretty amazing place that your, your fundraising process is actually <laughs> internal, you know, and, and uh, getting S team buy off as part of OP one and that sort of stuff. But a lot of the other stuff is again, like, you know, the frugality and the startup, you know, kind of forces that a lot of the same startup feel like I almost feel like sure. at Amazon, you know, it was even more startup-y at, at a lot of times than it was at Zillow uh, when I started there and there were only six of us. Um, and so, um, and I should, you're, you're totally right. I should say only what I know. Um, it feels very startup-y at Amazon. That's what I know. Um, so I shouldn't genericize it, but those are, those are my I, comments, Neil. I've never heard that anybody talk, like I never heard that before. The frugality principle, which Amazon has overall is actually really well adapted to a startup, you know, build things, uh, build MVPs and, you know, find out and then iterate. Greg Linden, early Amazon engineer, made that point multiple times. Is like what we were good at was getting things out the door in eight weeks and then finding out if it worked. And if it did, then we improved upon it. And if it didn't, we killed it or pivoted. So um, I, I, I like that. I totally believe that. Yeah, I will amplify pretty much all of what you had said on the things, especially on the DVD rental business, I completely agree with. And we spent a lot of time, we all agreed. I think the business thinking was correct at the time about what the right customer offer was. And I just don't think we got it right. Right. I think we built a good product that we were happy with in terms of the way it performed. We actually built an amazing team of people who have gone on to do great things either at Amazon and elsewhere. But I don't think we uh, got the right pricing and value proposition to our customers, partly because we were hamstrung by this notion, you know, like some other businesses have that we thought we don't, we want to make sure we love our best customers, that we always like the ones using it the most. And we didn't. We probably did not understand the full psychology of yeah. how that worked. And, and what I learned is a lot of what uh, Yora talked about. I, I would point out that, so I learned a, a bunch of things there. One, loose coupling works, right? And we had talked about it, but it, you know, in the early days of Amazon, where your team is small, you can't loosely couple because you're all in one glob anyway. Yeah. And Amazon was the first place that I got to experience that at scale. And we did that. I mean, one of the reasons... Right, not a lot of people know the story of DVD rental, and one reason I wanted to talk about it is that was a reasonable sized business for Amazon at the time. People don't talk about it. We ran it; it really was like our own company. Luckily, we had a really smart advisor who could comment on our model and our APIs <laughs> as well as the business plan. Yeah. But otherwise, we pretty much ran the whole thing. Like this was our show, you know. With the, I ran a bunch of other engineering teams working on other things as well. Yorit ran this business and development. Also that separating product or business and technology is does not have to be done. You know, right. I work with lots of companies today. It's still the model is there's business and there's development. 
And Amazon did a great job of being able to break that down. And that was very successful. Right. This notion of building services and the PR fact method. And then last, that agile development work. So, you know, having come through a few years at Amazon where I worked a few hours and we had top-down planning with definite launch dates, march to a war team, you know, a battle kind of metaphor. I actually started to think as I was reading what other people were doing, that it was time to think differently about developing and releasing software. Yeah. And it taught me a lot about how to do that, that I still use today. And I believe it's a better way to build and ship reliable software that's customer centric. Yeah, I agree. The, the thing I loved about Agile Scrum when sort of came to, came, it was introduced to it was just that it, re, it, it reduced the distraction for new features you wanted to get added or reprioritizing things because you always had a chance to do that at the next, uh, for the next sprint. You know, it wasn't, you had to pick everything and fight for it over a four month launch. It, it allowed you to learn as you go. And, and, you know, a lot of times those things that feel really urgent on a Monday, by Thursday, you know, you're not as jazzed about it. It's not as, you know, so you don't disrupt the process because everybody's sure. making their commitment on what they're going to build, when it's going to be done. You get, get much more reliable. Yeah. So I. And the I, other thing is, look, if you rely on heroic effort all of the time, yeah. eventually you kill all your heroes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so yeah. you can't do, you know, now, I think there are times when you still have to do that yeah. and, and, and in a growth company, but you cannot expect that to be the default mode of operation. And I think build a long-term great company. And I give Amazon a lot of credit for helping me learn that and for doing that in many places throughout the company as it continued to grow. I love it. So real quick, and just in case you are, it has to go uh, at the, at the 30 minute mark or the 30, yeah. 1130. You just want to quickly talk about what you're doing now, and then I'm asking Neil the same thing before we uh, before we end the the interview. Sure, I'm on. I, I uh, currently I run the Amazon retail business here in Europe. Uh, so um, pretty big, pretty interesting business. A new challenge for me. I've been doing it for about six months. I had planned to take a year-long sabbatical um, that got waylaid by COVID, and during that time period, this opportunity came up, and I and I and I jumped at it. So um, I've extended my. I came over here for two years, ten years ago, and we're still here. Yes, yeah, so you've been there almost twenty years in total, or not quite sixteen, seventeen years. Yeah, probably. I you know I always have to do the math and kind of deduct four, but like about eighteen <laughs> years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and how about you, Neil? Currently, I am the technologist in residence at Summit Partners, which is a growth equity firm. And I am there because of someone that Yard and I worked very closely with named Harrison Miller, who, when he left Amazon, actually rejoined Summit Partners as a managing director. And I help growth companies get better at building, shipping, and launching software. So I get to work with great growth companies across our portfolios in a variety of ways. Right. That's pretty awesome. And all the things, types of things we're talking about today, which you not only brought to Amazon, but learned about and learned how Jeff works, you're now able to extend that to, you know, from your case to teams within Amazon and, and across yeah. Europe. And you're doing it with earlier and mid, mid-stage startups that are, you know, summits investing. It's pretty, it's highly relevant. 
Yeah, I frequently feel though I need I should be paying a fee to people like Yorit, you know, Kim Rackmeller, my first boss who hired me at Amazon, Rick Dalzell, my favorite boss maybe ever, the CIO of Amazon, because you know, I am repackaging things that they taught me. And that's one reason I was particularly glad that Yora was able to join today because I learned a lot uh, getting to work with great business product leaders because I thought I was pretty good at the technology product leadership. So getting to work with people like Yora and Harrison and Jody Kalmbach, who joined a similar team and ran some of these businesses for me as well, has been great education. Awesome. It, it works both ways, Neil. I remember so much of our interactions. I, you know, feel very lucky for those summit companies that you're working with. It was, uh, it was the first time, like, you know, I got managed and worked with a, you know, a, a technical leader who is uh, super adept at the business side. It was, um, it was fantastic. It was, a, it was definitely been a highlight of my career at Amazon. Well, speaking for your and some of those other people, Neil. I'm sure they'd all say Venmo does work and you can send them all the money you'd like to. <laughs> I, I can use Amazon's subscription platform. There you oh, go. I would be remiss in not adding one thing is I think what it taught all of us, and it's the reason you're doing this, Dave, is one of the oldest cliches in both, you know, company building, investing, is that, you know, people really are very important. You know, I that's still my my, you know, people process product. And I worked yeah. with a lot of great people. There's yeah. a lot of love in that room. And uh, we did a good job of finding great people at Amazon back then. And it's why it still is more important. Great people will figure out how to do great things. Yeah. Even if it takes them a little while. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being guests on the podcast. Uh, we coordinated uh, from uh, Luxembourg to Seattle. And, you know, we got it done in only about eight and back weeks. back east. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I found it really interesting. I look every one of these. It's weird. Like I know a fair amount about the stuff, but I learn a bunch too. So the the conversations are really interesting, and and I'm getting just tons of feedback from people that they're liking it too. So it's sort of finding its its audience. So um, and it was just great to see and catch up with you both. Well, I love that you're doing it, Dave, and I I super appreciate that yep. it connected Neil and I again. Um, I, I I miss him a ton, but uh, thanks for having us. Awesome. Well, for the audience, yep. Thank you, uh, Dave. You're welcome. For the audience, thank you for listening to the Invent Like an Owner podcast. If you'd like more details about what we discussed today, uh, or want to contact me with edits or to suggest future guests or topics, please visit inventlikeanowner.com to sign up for the weekly newsletter. And that's it for today. Remember, no sniveling.